The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida or online at westpines.org. Well, um, we're talking about campfire stories from Grandpa, and particularly we're looking at Abraham, but it makes me think a lot about my own grandpas. And I, I'm fortunate enough to know both my mom's dad and my dad's dad and have good relationships with them. And they're both past now, but uh, there were lots of stories. Like my grandpa Gossett, my dad's dad, he was just, he was a house of a man. He was huge. He served in the military uh, in World War II and in Korea. And uh, he was really fascinated with flying, but he was too big to be a paratrooper. So uh, he was in construction. And in particular in Korea, he built airstrips behind enemy lines which is kind of cool. And he had all these really interesting stories about, you know, fighting on the perimeter of the construction site. Or there was one time where an enemy plane came and crashed into where they were building a runway for these supply planes. So really interesting stuff. And he would love to talk about that. Um, And he was in construction in the military, and that got him into construction when he came back. So he moved down to South Florida, and his construction company actually built a lot of old Hollywood in Hollywood, Florida. Uh, And to this day, you can get a tour of his construction sites. My dad offers that for free. Um, you can just get in the car and say something in code like, hey, would you like to get lunch? And uh, pretty soon you'll be on a tour of Grandpa's construction sites. You're thinking, let's go over to Subway and just get something fast. And all of a sudden you're going by his elementary school and looking at the baseball field where, you know, he split his chin open with a baseball bat. And then you go by this house and, well, on this road, there are all these houses he, that Grandpa built for all the dairy workers, you know, for the Beltler Dairy. They're no longer there, but this is where he built them. And if they were there, you could see them. And we go by this car dealership that he built. And it almost seems like every other um, construction site has a story of how somebody almost died from a construction-related accident at each place. Uh, but you can get on these surprise tours. They're kind of fun. And uh, I'd recommend if you ever get in a car with my dad, uh, don't ask for the tour. It'll just happen. And uh, when it does, just go with it. You'll learn something new every time. Um, But my grandpa was actually influential in building a lot of uh, the church that I grew up in. I grew up at Sheridan Hills Baptist Church over in Hollywood, and uh, his construction company helped build a lot of that. Uh, And he was like, he was an usher, you know? Like, my family was always there. So right at the top of the center aisle, there were these two doors that went out into the foyer, and he was one of the center aisle ushers. Every Sunday, you could find him there. And he was a big guy. If you went to Sheridan Hills in the 80s or 90s, you knew who Big John Gossett was. He was a big guy. He was like 6 foot 27 inches and like built like the actual door frame, just this huge guy. And I would just think about this massive man, you know, this guy that I share my lineage with. And I wonder, what happened? Like, (laughs) I'm not big at all, but he was this big guy. So I feel like I just lost on that, like, that gene lottery or something like that. So... And then I think about my mom's dad as well. He was great. He was the life of a party. Uh, He loved to spend time. He also served in the military. He didn't talk about too many things from the military. I think he had a very difficult experience. Uh, I know very few things. Like I know that he was trained for the horse-drawn artillery, uh, which is pretty incredible, the horse-drawn artillery. Uh, But when he actually got into battle, he went to World War II, and when he got there, they handed him a jeep because they didn't bring as many horses over as they did jeeps, and those were new. So... He learned about that. I know that he showed up in Normandy a couple days after the invasion, uh, and apparently there was a very powerful moment for him because he really wouldn't talk about any of it. Uh, but he came home on a, an infirmary ship because he messed up his ankle, and that was kind of the end of his military career. Um, but he would love to tell stories about family 
and about uh, just different jokes that he had. And well, some of his stories, I don't remember a lot of his stories or jokes, um, but growing up, now that I'm an adult, I think about them and I wonder how appropriate they were for the kids that were there. Uh, I don't remember the content, but I remember it typically after he delivered the punchline of the joke, my grandma would say, Bob, and he'd say, what? It was funny. It was funny. And they'd just kind of go back and forth. Um, but he loved to tell stories. He would also talk a lot about when he and my grandmother met. Apparently the story goes, uh, she, her family's looking for a house in this vacation community in New Jersey, and she's 14 and riding around with the developer, you know, looking at everything. They're getting a tour. And uh, as they're driving around, she's 14 in the back seat, and this 21-year-old lifeguard, right, this stud of a man starts walking toward the car because he recognizes, oh, this is the developer. Let me walk over and say hi and make some small talk. So he does, and here he is bronzed and chiseled, you know, this big lifeguard in some woolen bathing suit. And, uh, and she's just fascinated, and the story is apparently as soon as the window goes up and they keep driving, she just tells her parents, yeah, I like this place. We should move here. We should move here. <laughs> And a couple years later, they get to, uh, get to know each other, and she's teaching swimming lessons, and he's still a lifeguard, and apparently he was just dreamy. And all the girls wanted his attention, and all the kids loved him. So I actually have a picture of him, a picture of my grandpa Jobbins, like he was just a dreamy guy. <laughs> and again, I look at him and wonder, what happened? <laughs> what happened? Like, I had such good genes on both sides. I don't know what happened. Apparently, I missed the boat. Um, but I also learned other things about both of my grandfathers. I, I don't have many things in common with them about my stature or my looks, but uh, there are some family history things. Like, I know both of my grandfathers had four children in their family, and both of them lost their first child within a day or two of their birth. And that, that, was, that was heavy to think about and to talk about. And then later on, as we grew up, and we lost our first in an early miscarriage, and it was amazing how knowing your family history helps you work through some of those things. And being able to talk with grandparents about what it's like to lose a child that you didn't really know uh, was amazing and it was impactful. And it really helped show me that there are things that you can learn about your family and about your lineage that help you get through difficult seasons of life and that help frame where you need to go from there. And I think as we talk, if we could talk with Grandpa Abraham, if he were here today, there would be other things we could learn about his family, about our lineage, that would help us get through difficult things today. So we're going to look at, at a story about Abraham, and we're going to look at part of his lineage and look at how that can impact our life today. So if you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in Genesis 16, starting in verse 1. So you can go ahead and turn there. Or if, if you don't, it's in the listening guide that you got when you came in. Uh, it'll also be up on the screens. Um, but just to give you some background on Abraham, we started a couple weeks ago talking about Abraham. When we first meet Abraham, he's 75 years old. And he has this wife, Sarah. And one thing that's important for you to know, it's not a typo when we start to go into this verse. Um, their names originally were Abram and Sarai, rather than Abraham and Sarah. And uh, in a couple weeks, we'll talk about how that changes. But it's important for you to know, at one point, God changes their names from Abram to Abraham and from Sarai to Sarah. And that'll be important for uh, it's not a typo when we see those two different names, the same person. Um, but when we're introduced to Abraham, he's 75 years old, and God tells him, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And he calls him to leave his hometown, and he calls his wife to come with him. He says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And then right before where we pick up today, again in, in chapter 15, he re reiterates his promise by showing Abraham this land. He says, Abraham, your descendants will fill this land. And they will fill this land. And they will just multiply and take over this place. But Abraham has a problem with that. And he says, God, I have a problem because 
I'm already old. My wife is old. And we don't have any descendants. We don't have any kids. And at this point, Abraham and Sarah are already in their 70s and 80s. And it's not like, yeah, you may think, okay, but in Genesis, they lived like 600 years old. But at this point in the story, that's not what happens. Their years are very similar to our years. Most people live to maybe 120. So at this point, they're well beyond childbearing years. But God has still promised that he's going to give Abraham a son. So let's jump in here in Genesis 16, chapter 1. I'm going to go ahead and read it for us. Uh, and you can follow along as well. So Abraham, or Genesis 16, 1 and 4, it says, Now Sarah, or Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that, that she had conceived, she looked with contempt at her mistress. So let's get an idea of what's going on here. Abram and Sarai, Sarai is 77 years old. Abram's 85 years old. At this point, they're thinking, okay, God promised us a son, but I don't know how this is going to happen. So his wife, Sarai, she comes up with this idea. It's an accepted practice in the area. She said, okay, look, I have this maidservant. I have this servant. And her name is Hagar, and she's young, and she's fertile. And why don't you have a child with her? Take her to be your second wife. And since she's my maidservant, this is how we'll have a descendant. This is how we'll have a child. And it was an accepted practice. It wouldn't be as weird as if that happened today. It was an accepted practice in that time. But the problem with it is that still going outside what God had designed in marriage. And Abraham knew that. But they decided, this is what we're going to do. They kind of took their, their destiny into their own hands, and they said, God promised this, so we need to try and make this happen. We need to see if we can make this happen. And immediately, things started to go poorly for them. In verse 4, we read that as soon as Hagar conceives, as soon as she gets pregnant, she starts to look at her mistress at Sarai with contempt. As soon as she gets pregnant, she starts to realize that Sarai, Abram's first wife, that she couldn't do this, so it's a lot easier. And it starts to build this animosity between the two of them. It starts to build a lot of tension. Actually, Hagar flees because Sarai starts to be really harsh with her. And God meets Hagar and tells her, you need to go back and you need, you need to be with Sarai and with Abram right now. So she does, and that child comes about. His name is Ishmael. And God names him Ishmael. And, and there's this awkward family of Abram, his wife Sarai, his wife's maidservant, who's now also his wife Hagar, and her child Ishmael. And it's just a lot of turmoil because he stepped outside the plan that God had for him. He stepped outside what God had designed for him in marriage. Now, 14 years go by. 14 years. That's a long time. Ishmael's growing up. Hagar and Sarah are still battling. And Abram's still leading his family. And God comes to Abram again, and he promises him. But more specifically this time, he says, Abram, I will give you descendants. I will make you a great nation. But I will give them through your wife, Sarai. And at this point, he renames them Abraham and Sarah. So he says, through Sarah, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. So he promises that through Sarah's child. Now, there's a problem with this, and Abraham kind of appeals to God. There's a problem. This is 14 years later. She's in her 90s. He's 100. Like this, they're well beyond normal childbearing years. They've tried, and they can't. Well, let's jump ahead here and 
to chapter 21, Genesis 21. We're going to read in Genesis 21 what happens next after God comes back to Abraham and he says, no, I promise you through Sarah you will have a child. It says this, 21 verses 1 through 3. It says, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. So here we are. She's 91, and he's 100. And God promised Abraham, I will give you a son through Sarah. And when it was beyond their normal means of being able to do it, it was supernatural that God said, here is this son. And Sarah had a child. That's incredible. It was well beyond anything they could have done, and it was well outside the timeline that they had pictured for their life. But God said, this is what I'm going to do. This is my promise. I want you to trust me. I'm going to bring about this. And then they're in this really awkward situation. It's Abraham and Sarah and their new son, Isaac. But then they also have Hagar and Ishmael there, and it's always a problem between Sarah and Hagar. And then there starts to be a problem between Ishmael and Isaac as well. So this is what happens. Sarah says, Abraham, you need to send them away. You need to send Hagar and and Ishmael away, and he does. And God takes care of them. But he sends them away, and now Abraham and Sarah and their new son Isaac continue their journey just as that family. And here we have this awkward story about a man who we've talked about that's supposed to be this pillar of our faith, right? Abraham is supposed to be one of the the grandfathers of our faith. He's one of the first men that God called out and said, I'm going to start my people through you. And here we have this horrible story where he takes his wife's servant and has a child with her because he wants to try and fulfill what God has promised. And what do we do with that? How do we read this? How do we actually look at what's going on in Abraham's life? Is this just, is this helpful to realize, well, maybe I shouldn't have more than one wife at a time? Maybe, but I think that completely misses what's going on. We're lucky because several hundred years later, the Apostle Paul, he's, he's one of the first generations of preachers, and he's planting these churches, and he writes all of these churches different letters to help them through different things they're struggling with. And as Paul's writing, we have in the book of Galatians, we have him dealing with this particular story. And I want us to look at it because I think it's going to be helpful for us to understand the story of what's going on here with Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and their two children. So we're going to be in Genesis, or I'm sorry, in um, Galatians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 22. But this is a story, or this is a letter that Paul wrote to this church to help them understand how they're interacting with God. So let's turn over. Uh, it's going to be up on the screens as well. Um, actually, before we jump in, uh, I want to clear something up. We're going to talk about um, religion as we talk through this. And a lot of you would consider yourself very religious. And by that, what you mean is you're devoting your life to becoming more like Christ. And that is great, and that's what we want as well. But what Paul's going to talk about when he's talking about religion, what he's going to build is he's going to show that oftentimes religion is a set of rules that we use to improve our standing before God. So as we talk about religion, I may not mean exactly what you're thinking at first, but we're talking about this structure of rules, and that's going to be important for the way we walk through the rest of this. So let's take a look here in Galatians 4, starting in verse 22. It says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according through promise. 
And this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. There you have it. That sums it up, right? Makes it interesting and a lot easier to understand. Okay, well, we'll walk through it. Um, so here's what happens. Abraham is writing to them, and he's trying to help them understand what they're talking about. And there's this argument between different church leaders at the time that had just come in and the church that Paul had started. So here's what he's saying. We're going to walk through this. Look at verse, two, or verse 22. It says, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. So he's already setting up these two types. He's saying there's the slave and there's the free. Okay, so there are these two types that Abraham's going to start to develop. Let's look at verse 23. It says, The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. What does he mean? Okay, so there are these two children. The slave is born according to the flesh, according to human means, right? When Abraham couldn't have the promised child, he went according to his flesh, according to his human means, and he had a child with Hagar. So that's the slave woman, according to the flesh. And then there's also the son of the promise. God promised that he was going to give Isaac to Abraham and Sarah. So that is the son of the promise. So we've already seen there's the flesh, there's our own human means, or earthly means, and then there's the promise, that's the heavenly means. It's something that God has brought about. So we've got these two ways of dealing with it. So, verse 24. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. And here's just a side note about that. When we read the Bible, we can be confident that the things that we're reading are true. So, when we read about Abraham and Sarah, it's not just in our Bible that records Abraham and Sarah's life. There's other literature as well that records their life. We know that Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, Isaac, these are all real characters that lived real lives and went through real events, and it really did happen this way that Abraham and Sarah couldn't have a child, and Hagar and Ishmael entered the scene, and then later Isaac entered the scene. We can be confident of that. But what Paul's doing is he's looking at what God did in history, and he's looking at the, the way that God sets everything up, and he's saying we can understand God used the real physical events of these lives to point to something bigger for us. They're pointing to, to not just what happened. We can learn something just from what happened in Abraham and Sarah's life, but also it points to a bigger picture that God is working out in our lives and a bigger picture that God is painting, and he wants us to understand something. So we can understand this story allegorically because of that. So if we look at it as an allegory, here's what he says in verse 24. He says, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. We'll get to that in a second. Verse 25. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. What's the deal with Mount Sinai? Well, it's very clear. Paul wants to make sure you understand not just the Mount Sinai that you've heard of, but he's talking about the, the Mount Sinai in Arabia. Now, you've, you're probably familiar with what happened there if you're not familiar with the name of the place, and you probably have seen the movie as well. See, Mount Sinai, Moses came to Mount Sinai. God called him up on the mountain, and there Moses, or there God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. You've probably seen Charlton Heston do this. He gets, like, tombstones out of a lightning storm, right? 
So this is God meeting with his people and establishing the covenant, establishing this first covenant, which is the law. It's, it's a group of rules. God's laying the groundwork for these are the ways that you can interact with me. This is the, the foundation for how you can have a relationship with me and how you can try and improve your status because you're sinful and I'm not. So this is the groundwork. So he's saying the son of slavery, Hagar, and her children are from Mount Sinai. It corresponds to the current Jerusalem, to the Jewish community that was there in Jerusalem on earth. But then look what else he says. He says, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. What is the Jerusalem above? This is, it's a biblical euphemism for heaven, right? The Jerusalem above, there's this idea of this, this holy city that God has created in heaven, and they call that the Jerusalem above. So it's saying that those who, that are corresponding to the law that was given on Mount Sinai, that are in the current Jerusalem, those who are under the law, under all of these rules to interact with God, that they're in slavery, but those of us that are able to interact with God's holy city, children of heaven, they're free. These are the children that God promised, that he's promised to, and that he is fulfilling, that he is bringing about. So there are these two covenants, two ways of interacting with God. There's either rules or there's promise. And this is how God sets it up. And this is how Paul starts to explain it. But what do we do with that? We can start to understand that a lot of it that Paul's setting up is it's kind of the idea of, of religious structure, right? Of rules and religion that we use to improve our standing or really the gospel. The gospel is it's the promise of Jesus that Jesus came and lived a life and he promises that he has taken all of your sin on the cross and he's paid for all of it. And then from that, that he died and then he was resurrected. Now he promises that if you put your faith in him, that he will save you, he will be your rescuer, and that you can have a relationship with God in heaven. So he very clearly draws these two lines. There's the rules and religious structures. There's religion, or there's this promise that's all encapsulated in the relationship with Jesus. And here are these two things that we see happening. We can either connect ourselves with the rules, or we can connect ourselves with the promise. So what do we do with this? How do we know if, if we're connecting with one or the other? Well, here's the problem with connecting with a group of rules, right? If you set up a group of rules, a religious structure, and even if you adhere to rules that are in the Bible, and you decide, okay, this is what I'm going to want to do. This is how I need to make myself righteous before God. This is how I need to respond. And you start living by all of these rules, you're trying to make yourself righteous, Right? And we have a term for that. When you do that, you become self-righteous. And the problem is when you become self-righteous, you're no longer interacting with the promises God made, but you're relying completely on your own. You're relying completely on your own. You're, you're separating yourself from Jesus and from his promise, and you're relying on religion instead. Well, how do you know if you're doing that? Well, I have good news. I have a couple ways that you can tell if you're involved in self-righteousness or if you're enslaved to self-righteousness. I've got three ways in particular, three signs that I'm enslaved to self-righteousness. And I want to walk through these with you. The first uh, is that you're oppressed by the rules. You're oppressed by the rules. Here's what I mean by that. We have a lot of young families at West Pines, right? A lot of families that have little kids. And if you're not currently in that stage of life, 
you've been around them, or maybe at one point you were in that stage of life, so you can probably uh, commiserate or put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Um, and just for this idea, just for the next minute, put yourself in those shoes. Okay, you are the husband of the family. You've just had your youngest child. Now you have multiple kids. And you've brought the child home from the hospital. And there's, everybody's asleep and calm and quiet. And you sit down with your wife, and you're going to talk about how you're going to handle this next phase of your life because you know things are going to get busy and crazy. And as you sit down and talk, your wife says, well, I want you to know how I can feel loved. So I've written down these rules for you. These are ways that you can show that you love me, ways that you can interact with me. First, you can get home no later than 5.15 in the afternoon. That would be great. And then when you get home, you can be the primary parent for our children. At 5.15, you'll start to play with them. And then you can get all of their hands washed and their faces washed as well. And by 5.45, we'll sit down and have dinner, and you'll make sure that you mind all of their table manners. And then after dinner, you're the one who's primarily responsible to go upstairs and to get all of them bathed, brush their teeth, comb their hair, put them in their pajamas. And then after that, you need to put them in bed and read them their favorite their favorite story, their favorite bedtime story. And then you need to sing them their favorite song and pray with them and tuck them in and kiss them goodnight. And then when you're done with that, you can come down to the kitchen. And you can wash all of the dishes that we have in the kitchen from dinner You can make sure you wipe down all of the counters, put away any leftovers that we have, and make sure that everything's tidied up. And I'd like all this to be done by 8.15, so then you can sit down with me and have a cup of tea, and we can have intelligible conversation where you can ask me about my day. I know some of you are taking notes. These are great ideas. I like this. But let's be honest. If we start with the rules, we're just headed for trouble. Because if we start with the rules, if you're driving home, if you're putting yourself in those shoes, if you're driving home and you're thinking, okay, I've got to make sure I'm there by 5.15, and you start to get in traffic, it starts to get troublesome. Or even if you make it home and you start abiding by all of those rules, you've got all the kids cleaned up, ready, they're sitting at the table, they're minding their manners, you're going to put them in bed later, you start to bargain because you followed all the rules. You fulfilled all your commitments. And now you're upset because dinner isn't your favorite meal or the kids aren't acting right because you did something. Or maybe you come down afterwards and there are too many dishes. Like you don't need this many dishes to make dinner. You start to bargain because you fulfilled your responsibilities. So leading with the rules actually isn't helpful because leading with the rules just creates resentment, right? But if you were to lead with love instead... If you were to know, these are the things that my wife really needs and wants, and you get in your car after work and you start to drive home and you start to think about her and think about how lucky you are to have this family and how much you love your wife, you get home and immediately you realize she's had the kids all day long, so I'm going to go ahead and spend some time with them and give her a little bit of space. And then you get them ready for dinner, and she's got dinner ready, and you guys eat, and it's just, it may not be your favorite meal, but you're so thankful to be there with your family. And then afterwards, you haven't seen your kids all day long, so you want to be a part of their bedtime routine and, and read the ridiculous stories and sing the songs even though you can't hold a tune and brush their teeth and tuck them in. You want to do all of these things. And afterwards, you come downstairs and you realize your wife has worked so hard all through the day that you're going to say, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and take care of the dishes. You relax, I'll take care of the dishes. And then afterwards, you want to talk to her because you love her and you want to get to know her. And see, when you lead... With the rules, you feel oppressed and you feel like you can bargain about it. But when you lead with love, you get the relationship out of it. And you get to respond. But when you're self-righteous, when you've built something based on following all the rules, you're oppressed by the rules. You feel like they're a burden that you have to bear every day. 
So the first sign if you're oppressed by self-righteousness or if you're enslaved by self-righteousness is you're oppressed by all the rules. And the second one, the second one's a lot of fun as well. The second one is that you jump to being judgmental. You just you jump right into being judgmental. And here's why. If you're adhering to a system where you work so hard to, to make yourself better, and you're working so hard to please God, you get really upset when other people don't seem like they're working as hard as you are. When you press so hard to make sure that you're able to follow these rules and you go without things because you know that that's what you're supposed to do, you get frustrated when you see other people are enjoying those things or you get mad when they're not doing it the way you want to do it. So, for example, you're overhearing somebody talk to his wife and you think, man, obviously that guy does not love his wife the way I love my wife. Or, man, he's just, he's in for it today. Or maybe you're at the playground and there's another kid who's playing too rough and being too wild and you think, wow, they don't have a clue what they're doing parenting. Or maybe you see that child do something crazy like actually hit your child and you think, wow, they are not a good parent because, well, I would never let my kid do that. And you start to judge them and judge their parenting. And instantly, you put yourself in the seat of knowing what's better and what they should do because you work so hard to do it yourself. So you're really fast to judge them. But instead, if we're children of promise, we realize I'm no better than them and I haven't done anything different than them. See, when we're fast to, to be self-righteous and to judge somebody, we work so hard to prove to everybody around us that we're better than we actually think that we are, that it's offensive to us and it's frustrating to us when somebody else isn't acting the way we want to act. It's offensive when they're not doing the things we want to do. So we judge them and think that we're better than them because they're not acting the way we know they should act. That's what we do when we're judgmental. We think we're better because they're not doing what we think we should do in that situation. But instead, if we're, if we're children of a heavenly promise, we know that we're accepted not based on what we are able to do, but we're accepted based on God's promise to us. So rather than overhearing the other guy and feeling like, man, he just doesn't love his wife, you realize, wow, I've been there too. Or maybe, man, I don't think he realizes how bad he sounds right now or how harsh he's being. Or maybe you see the kids running around on the playground and you think, wow, I've been there. Or maybe you're on a two-day streak of your kids not doing it. And you realize, yeah, I've been there too. Or maybe those kids just got there with their grandpa who gave them fun dip from today, and that's why they're running around crazy because they're hopped up on sugar. But you have grace toward them, and you realize, like, this happens. You know, a while ago, I was at Target, and uh, my wife and kids were somewhere else in the store, and I'm walking around, and I see a pastor friend of mine that I know. He's from another church in the area, and uh, he and I know each other. We go out to lunch every now and then. We talk. He's helped me through some areas, and we just we dialogue about how to raise young families and ministry and stuff. And I really respect this guy. He's a great dad. Uh, so I see him at Target, and I think, oh, I, I should go say hi to him. So I start to walk toward him. And as I'm getting closer, I realize it's not a fun day in their home. He's not having a great time at Target. So I do what you would do as well. I target stalk them, right? You kind of get behind like the, the aisle of clothes and you're acting like you're looking for a size, trying to see if you can make eye contact and approach them yet. But this poor guy, he's there, he's got his three kids with him 
And he's telling one of them he's got to put that thing down again. He's telling the other one he can't have ice cream because they don't serve ice cream in the men's department here at Target. His third, he's trying to help his wife corral because she thinks it's a great time to wander off. His wife is asking him questions about something, and he's trying to find the size of shirt that he needs there in the department. And it's just going crazy. And you can see on his face the rage that is building because nothing is going right. And right before he picks up one child and throws him into the wall and eats the other out of frustration, he decides... We're done. And he grabs two of his boy's hands, and his wife and his daughter come with him, and they just walk right out of the store, and he just says, we're done. And I felt so bad for him, but you know what? I realized that I'm there too sometimes. And I realized if I didn't know him well, I could see that and think, man, he's just not a good parent. He's not really able to control his kids. But I also think it's a rite of passage if you're a parent that every child is entitled to at least one fully engaged, complete and total public meltdown right? And if you have multiple children, not only are they all entitled to that, they're also entitled to a mutiny where they all do it at the same time and they just destroy your plans for the afternoon and whatever shopping you're at and maybe even the store you're in. Like that's a part of parenting. It's a rite of passage. So when I see my friend, I see him going through that, I just feel like, man, I've been there. So I just go another way and, you know, let him have his day. I know I'll see him again and he'll be able to relax and his kids won't be driving him crazy and he doesn't have to try and talk to me. But when we're self-righteous, we're very quick to judge other people. We jump to those judgments and we jump to evaluating who that other person is based on what they're doing in a way that's unfair, in a way that is ignoring what we are and the way that we respond as well. So that's the second one, that we jump to judgmentalism. So the third one, uh, the third one is that I'm insecure. That if I'm enslaved to self-righteousness, I'm insecure. And here's why. When you work so hard to build yourself up by this set of rules, by adhering to these rules, your reputation becomes and your identity becomes the person who's able to follow all of these rules. But you know in the same way that you had all of this effort engaged to follow the rules, you can very quickly start breaking them. Or you can have somebody else find out that you don't keep all of the rules and your reputation starts to crumble around you or your own perception of who you are starts to crumble around you. And you very quickly need to start making sure that they realize they're even worse than you are or, or you start to rush to, but no, I don't do that all the time or that was just one time. Like you, you become very insecure in who you are because you've developed this persona that you're hoping God is pleased with based on all of these rules. You're not actually happy with who God has made you. You can't be yourself. The problem with the structure of rules is you can't be yourself. You have to be better. You can't be yourself. You have to be better than who you are. So you become very, very insecure in what's happening. And when you're enslaved to self-righteousness, you realize that everything counts in the way that you act and that if you stop, stop acting the right way, that it all falls apart. So you can't let people know that. So you build this wall of an appearance around yourself and, and you can't let anybody know that you're any less. Or you can't even celebrate with other people around you because you feel like they're getting rewards that God hasn't given you. Your coworker gets a promotion and you can't be happy for them even though you couldn't have gotten the promotion. You can't be happy for them because you think, how long has it been since I've had a promotion? And God, I've done everything right. Why can't I get a promotion? So you can't be happy. You're too insecure to be happy for them. Or your neighbor comes home in a new car and you're frustrated because they got the model car you wanted or it's nicer than yours and you can't be happy for them because you're mad that God, I've, I've followed all of these rules and you're too insecure to be happy for somebody else when they can afford or do something you can't do. 
So when you're enslaved to self-righteousness, you're insecure. Now the difficult part is what do we do about this? When we think about all three of those things, when we think about being oppressed by the rules, and we think about jumping to being judgmental, or when you think about being insecure, all of us have seasons where we go through that. Because all of us have seasons where we're more self-righteous than others. And the problem is, it's not just like, I can fix this once and I'm good. It's not like buying a membership club and, and you're good. You may have to re-up it every now and then, but you're good. It's, that's the default setting of our heart. Self-righteousness is the default setting of our heart. We want to know the rules, and then we want to judge the rules ourselves whether they're worth following. For example, whatever you do, don't look behind you. Now the one place you want to look is behind you. That's what we do in our heart. We hear a rule, and if we can't tell how important it is, we want to break it to find out how important it is, right? That's our default setting. So how do you change that? How do you start to change your heart? Well, the amazing thing is you can't do it on your own. You can't. First thing you can do is you can go to God and ask him daily. Ask him to start to change your heart. And then you get involved in other things. Like we love um, people who, we love encouraging people to read the Bible daily. Not because it's a, it's a rule that makes you better, but because it lets you get to know who God is and lets you grow in your relationship to God. And you start to become awestruck by who God is and you start to respond to who he is and your heart starts to turn and starts to, to want to serve and love God more than just abide by all the rules. But there are other things we can do as well. And one of them I'm going to recommend to you, and I think this is a very helpful practice. As I've talked with people and as I've had the privilege of counseling different people, this is something I've recommended that's been very, very helpful. It's called a gospel manifesto. And it's not really a sexy name. It's not really cool. And it's not something that you're going to sit down and, and open a book or pull it out and like light's going to shine down and a dove come down and classical music play. Like that doesn't happen. But this is a practice that you can do to help start to change your heart and orient your heart. And it looks like this. It's, uh, it's just a group of scriptures that are promises that God has made. Rather than always looking at the rules of what I should and should, shouldn't do, I try and focus on the promises God has made toward me. And I start to, to turn my heart and remind myself of these promises. So I have, I have five scriptures for you today that I would recommend. And these are all five that have helped me as well and that I hope uh, that you can write them down and you can read them later and they will help you as well. Uh, but these are five scriptures that I would encourage you to put in a gospel manifesto that you can read daily. You just read over them daily. You don't spend a ton of time pouring through. You just read over them daily to remind yourself of these truths and these promises God has given you. So let's look at these five verses. The first one is Ephesians 2.8. I'm going to read it, but when we get to the underlying portion, I want you to read it with me. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. Here's the thing that's amazing about this. When you read this, you remember you're saved not through the things that you've done. You're saved only through faith. You're saved through faith in Jesus that he has come to save you and rescue you and that is what saves you. It's a gift that God has given you. It's not something you're able to do on your own. So when I read this, I remind myself that, you know what, God? It's not about how good I am today or how well I can follow all of your rules today. It's about I have faith in you and you have saved me. 
And that encourages my relationship with God, and that encourages me to be able to love God. The second one is Galatians 4.28. Galatians 4.28. This is right below where we were reading earlier. It says, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. You're children of promise. Paul's writing this letter to this church, and he's writing it particularly to the Christians in the church to remind them, you're not children of the slave who are under this religious set of rules and this law. You are children of the promise. Jesus has promised that, he, that you are now his children, that you are in a relationship with God. So you are a child of promise. Not that you can do it on your own. You can't come about it in your own physical means, but God has brought it about in you. So you're a child of promise. This third one is Romans 8, 1. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This one is so encouraging. Because often when you have those days that you're not doing that well, or you realize, man, God, everything you wanted me to do, I did the exact opposite today. You can be reminded that there's no condemnation. There's no punishment for that. Jesus has absorbed all of it. Often we default to thinking that, okay, now I have to pay some sort of penance. Maybe I have to spend time in prayer, or I have to go tell somebody else about Jesus, or I have to read the Bible a whole lot. There's no condemnation. As soon as you realize that, as soon as you run back to God, he's there. He doesn't say you have to do this first, you have to say that first. He's there, and he has that relationship with you. He's paid for all of that condemnation. The third one is Philippians 1.6. It says, and I am sure of this, that, read it with me, he who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's encouraging because it's not, it's not, and I'm sure of this, that you will finish it all by, by the day of Jesus Christ. It's that God who began a good work in you, he is going to do it. God is going to continue to work in you. That it's not that you need to muster it up in your own self, but that God is at work in you and God is the one who's going to bring it about in your life. So that's massively encouraging for me. And the last one is 1 Peter 1.13. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you, not on your ability to follow the rules, but set your hope on the grace that's brought to you from God through Jesus. You can set your hope on that. As I read over these scriptures daily and as I remind myself of these promises that God has given me, it starts to change my heart. It starts to orient my heart. It, it helps fill my head with the knowledge that leads my heart to the truth that I'm a child of promise and that it's not by my work or by your work that God loves us. It's by Jesus' work and by our adherence to him and our faith in him that makes us children of promise, that makes us right with God and that makes us in that relationship where now I can love God and I don't feel oppressed by all of his rules, but I feel like I can respond in a way that, that works best and that protects my relationship with God. And that's what we can see from the story of Abraham. That's what we can see about these two children and, and the family that we belong in is the one of promise because Jesus has offered that. And for some of you, you need to leave here today and you need to make sure that you're reminding yourself of that promise. And maybe those scriptures are something you write down and that you read through daily and that you go through to help you remember that. And for others of you, maybe you're hearing it today and this is the first time you've actually heard it or maybe you feel like you're hearing about this family that's on the other side but you're just still oppressed by all these rules or you feel far away from God and you wonder, okay, how do I actually get into that family? How do I become one of the children of promise? And it's very simple. 
Jesus said you can't do it on your own. That's part of the beauty of, of all these rules that we have. It helps us realize we can't do it on our own. We need to be rescued. We need to be saved. When we rely on our flesh, it fails. But when we, when we rely on God's promises, he's going to bring it about. So God loves us and God sent Jesus for us. And he promises that if we believe in Jesus and confess him with our mouth, that we'll be saved. It's that easy. It's not a new set of rules It's not a new religion to pick up. It's that we believe and have faith in Jesus, and Jesus saves us. And that's the beauty of it. And for some of you, that's something that maybe you've heard before, but this time it's a little bit different. Or maybe you've never heard that before, and you think, okay, I want to do that. I want to have that kind of faith, that kind of relationship with Jesus. And here's what we're going to do. In just a second, we're going to pray. And if that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer where you can pray quietly in your own heart to God and you can ask him for that. And you today can be adopted into that family and become a child of promise. And God will continue to work in you rather than you relying on yourself. So let's pray now. Let's always go ahead and bow our heads and close our eyes. And if that's you today, if you want to begin that relationship with God, if you want to put your faith in Jesus, I'm going to ask you to pray this quietly in your heart. Say, Jesus, I can't change my heart. I can't make myself right with you. I need you to rescue me. I need you to change my heart. I trust in your promise that you'll rescue me and that you will make me right with God. And I thank you for doing that. And God, I thank you for adopting me into your family and being a child of promise now. Thank you, Jesus. Now I want to pray for you. God, I thank you for those who today, for the first time, begin a relationship with you. God, I thank you for their, or just their faith and realizing that it's not about them, but it's completely and totally about you. And we thank you for that. And we thank you for how freely you offer that to us. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call us at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.